Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The top political story of the week continues to be impeachment. Speaker Nancy Pelosi has instructed House Committee Chairman to move forward with articles of impeachment against President Trump. The timeline will move fast as articles could be ready next week with a vote before Christmas. President Trump, for his part, says he wants to get it over with quickly and move on to the trial in the Senate, where he would most definitely be acquitted. Tolu Olorupina, White House reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how impeachment is ramping up. She came out and gave a very somber speech where she reached back into U.S. history and talked about the founding fathers and how they put impeachment in the Constitution for a time directly like the one we're seeing, in which she is basically accusing the president of abusing his power, engaging in bribery, trying to solicit something of value from a foreign government to interfere in the upcoming election. And she said that President Trump's actions are not in dispute. And because of that, they leave the Democrats and the Congress with no choice. I think those were her words but to go forward with impeachment. Yeah, and she's really elevating this whole thing and making the statement that the stakes are very high. As you said, she's bringing in the Constitution, the founders. She said our democracy is what is at stake with this. And we know that this whole process has been very partisan from the beginning. Even with the House Judiciary, with their witnesses the other day, the legal scholars, three Democrats, one Republican, and even those people were split on party lines This is going to be a tough thing to navigate. And Nancy Pelosi was even asked by a reporter when she gave her statement earlier, are you afraid about Democrats being vulnerable if they vote for this? And she said, this is not political. This is about the Constitution. This is about far more important things. When Nancy Pelosi decided to sort of change her stance and say that she was in favor of opening an impeachment inquiry, it was a big shift because earlier in the year, she said that impeachment is something that divides the country, that she's reluctant to do it. She didn't think the president was worth even going down the road of impeachment. But now we're hearing that based on the president's dealings with Ukraine, the idea of this quid pro quo to interfere with the 2020 election, that Democrats feel that they have no choice because the president was so brazen and because his actions were so far in the direction of abusing his power, that they feel that they have to take this step. Otherwise, the entire idea of impeachment would be sort of null if they didn't use it in this case, because they think it's such an open and shut case. And that's what we heard from Nancy Pelosi today, was that even though she's not gleeful about this, she's not happy about this, she does feel that she is sort of called by history and called by the Constitution to move forward with this process. And this is something that's only happened just a couple of times in U.S. history in terms of a president being impeached. But it does appear that the Democrats have the support that they need. The Democrats are definitely on board, at least enough of them, to move articles of impeachment out of the House and over to the Senate that President Trump will be impeached in the next few weeks. Yeah, I mean, the timeline moves very fast. The Judiciary Committee is going to be having something on Monday so that they can present the impeachment evidence that they have. It seems like they're going to be going after abuse of power and bribery, obstruction of Congress, obstruction of justice. So there might be at least three articles of impeachment. How has the president reacted so far to this news? 
Well, he has spent a lot of time reacting on Twitter, as he likes to do. We got a couple of tweets earlier today in which the president said that he wants the impeachment process to be fast. He said that if they're going to do it in the House, they should just get it over with, do it quickly, and then move over to the Senate where Republicans are in control, and he feels like he'll get a fair shake in the Senate. He's sort of starting to look forward to the idea of having a Senate trial where Republicans will be in control and he will feel that he may be able to get certain witnesses and certain privileges that he hasn't been able to get in the House impeachment process. So we have seen a shift in the uh, White House strategy in which before they were sort of thinking maybe the Democrats wouldn't go forward with this. Maybe they would go with a censure or some other alternative to impeachment. Now that it seems very clear that the Democrats will impeach President Trump, the White House is starting to take a more aggressive stance and start to look toward the Senate trial, which could take place in January, and look for ways to both win that in the public sphere in terms of the messaging, in terms of how the public views it, but also the fact that the numbers are in their favor in the Senate. Not only do they have the majority, but in order for the president to be convicted, it would have to be a two-thirds vote to oust him from office. They feel pretty confident that that's not going to happen. So they're going into this with the idea that they can use the Senate trial to score some political points to allow the president to have a talking point that the D.C. establishment tried to impeach me and take me out, but I was able to survive. And you do see the White House starting to strategize for the eventuality of the president being impeached by the House and acquitted by the Senate going full steam ahead into the 2020 election with that argument that he was able to overcome the partisan impeachment process. The president and his allies for some time now, obviously calling this a witch hunt, saying that the Democrats just want a redo of the 2016 election. A lot of people have said that the Democrats just hate the president. And there was an interesting moment during Nancy Pelosi's announcement today when a reporter asked, do you hate the president? She was already leaving the podium. She was walking backstage and she stopped and she kind of lectured this guy and she told him, don't ever associate that word with me in this context. How did that play out? Yeah, that was quite a moment. And I think that will be one of the seminal moments of this entire impeachment process. Nancy Pelosi often gets those shouted questions as she's walking away from the podium. She very rarely answers them. Sometimes if they're provocative in a more lighthearted way, she'll answer with a joke as she keeps walking. But this time she answered the question and walked back to the podium and really wanted to make the point that she is not a hateful person. She's not doing this impeachment because she hates the president. She even said that she prays for the president. She said that this is a somber moment and the president left her and the Congress with no choice but to move forward with this impeachment. And she really wanted to drive home that point that this is not something that's being done out of spite or just because of partisan politics or because Democrats do not like the president. She really wants to drive home the point that they feel that this is a constitutional responsibility of Congress to have an oversight function and to rein in the executive branch and to protect the country from foreign interference in the upcoming election. And she spent a lot of time really lecturing the reporter and also trying to make the point to the country that Democrats are not doing this out of spite. They're doing it out of what they feel is their responsibility to the Constitution. Tolu Olorunipa, White House reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Next, something you might not be aware is going on at the DMV. The DMV is selling your personal information. DMVs are selling the personal data you give them when you apply for a driver's license or register a vehicle to thousands of businesses and even private investigators. And it's all perfectly legal. 
For more on this story, we spoke to Joseph Cox. He's a senior staff writer at Vice's Motherboard for how DMVs are making millions of dollars off that personal information. It started when I saw a local media report from Florida talking about their own DMV selling information and profiting off that. And I wondered, well, is this a nationwide thing? You know, is this going on in other states? And sort of unsurprisingly, we found that all of the states we got records back from through Public Records Act requests, all of them were selling data. Of course, they weren't all making the same amount of money. Some were making millions, some will make tens of millions, but there was a constant theme of, as you say, there were private investigators in there, there were data brokers like LexisNexis, insurance companies, all sorts of different industries are getting this data and using it for whatever they want, essentially. I mean, there are protections in place. Various DMVs say that they do vet individual clients and customers of this data. But at the time of that investigation, multiple DMVs told us that they've had to cut off access when certain users have abused that data. So this isn't just sell the data and everything's okay. Abuse has happened yeah. and they have had to act upon it. Do we know of examples of how some of this has been abused? Unfortunately, not. We don't know specific instances, but it was across multiple states. And I mean, the process of getting this sort of data, it really does vary from DMV to DMV. But it seems like a pretty straightforward process if you can explain your quote unquote legitimate purpose for that data. It doesn't seem like it's incredibly difficult to get hold of. And we were originally going to do that as part of our investigation, but we didn't want to, you know, misrepresent ourselves as a bounty hunter or a private investigator or an insurance firm. But these are industries that are buying the data. How much would like a single person's information cost? I know that a lot of times they're doing these in bulk, but give us some type of cost structure that you might have been able to find out. If I recall correctly, one of the prices we saw is literally one cent for a record. (laughs) I mean, these are bargain basement prices if you look at it on a per record basis. But as you say, of course, a lot of these clients are buying it in bulk. And that stuff adds up when you're buying data which impacts a large chunk of the population. Of course, people need a car to get around and they need to get a driver's license for that. So they have to provide this information. So that's a lot of data, even if you're selling it for one cent or five cent or whatever it may be, that's still a lot of money. So this is all legal. And there's actually some laws on the books with regards to privacy on this? So this is all legal under the DPPA, and that was formed in 1994 after a private investigator was hired by a stalker. They got the address of a famous actress from the DMV, and then the stalker unfortunately murdered the actress. So then they brought this law into effect ostensibly to give people more privacy, but it still allowed the exemption of giving it to PIs. So I'm not exactly sure what that law actually um, achieved, but that is the one that this data selling is still regulated under. And as you say, there are laws on the books. There's California's privacy law coming up. But as far as I know, that would only apply or primarily apply to businesses. Now, it's debatable whether the DMV, of course, in the practice of this selling this data, whether it's a business or a government agency, lawyers I've spoken to are skeptical that law could hold the DMV with this data selling. But it'll be an interesting time when that does come into force in January. We were talking about how widespread this is and how many people are actually buying some of this data from some of your reporting. The Delaware DMV has direct access agreements with about 300 different entities. Wisconsin DMV has current agreements with over 3,100 entities. I mean, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of people that are buying this data. And your latest article has to do specifically with the California DMV. And they're making $50 million a year selling drivers' personal information. 
as you point out, this is not one or two companies buying this data. This isn't just Experian or LexisNexis. There are hundreds and sometimes thousands of entities um, buying this data. They may not all be doing it simultaneously. That may be spread across years, um, but certainly that's the number that have had access to this data. And California, we finally got those records through um, the other day, and that price, sorry, that total of revenue really stood out. 50 million up to 52 million one year. That is so much money. Yeah for data. I mean, people use this phrase of, you know, data is the new oil. And I've never really bought that because people usually use it in the context of Facebook is selling your data. They're not. They use it for adverts. But here in this case, they're literally selling your data yeah. and they are literally making tens of millions of dollars from it. And you asked the appropriate question, is the sale of this data essential to the DMV? What did they say about that? They said it's used for, you know, roadside assistance or maybe it's used for vehicle recall. You know, maybe there's a defective part in a vehicle manufacturing batch and they have to, you know, contact people to be able to get those back. Those do seem like legitimate use cases, but then I'm not sure if private investigators, for instance, are essential use. Case by case, of course, some are going to be doing good work. Others will be, you know, spying on suspected cheating spouses, that sort of thing. Rather than getting into the nitty gritty of sort of arguing about legitimate uses, I mean, I'm a journalist that's not really my job that's up for the dmv or lawmakers i think it just shows that this data is being sold to more people than the public may actually realize and there's probably a debate around who they want that data to be sold to joseph cox senior staff writer at vice's motherboard thank you very much for joining us thank you An interesting sports story that ramped up after former baseball player lars anderson wrote an article in the athletic about using adderall First, there were greenies in baseball, then there were steroids, but now Adderall seems to be the performance-enhancing drug of choice. The pills are easy to get, hard to test for, and provide that boost of focus and energy that's needed to play the game. The big question is, while many people believe taking Adderall could be cheating, some players need it for legitimate medical reasons. So what should be done? For more on this story, we spoke to Kendall Baker, sports editor at Axios. Amphetamines used to be very popular in baseball. In fact, it's kind of always been. And people often obviously link most of baseball's troubles with the steroid era. But this was actually kind of the precursor to that. I mean, you think about it just kind of generally and not getting into specifics. Baseball is a very, you know, monotonous sport. It's a grind of a season. And essentially, players just need focus, whether it's drinking a Red Bull, you know, multiply that by 100. And that's what you're getting with some of these drugs. And so that's really what this is all about. It's a sport that requires a lot of attention, a lot of just staring at pitchers at balls. And so like players are going to do what they think is going to give them the advantage. The interesting thing about Adderall now entering the conversation is that Adderall is actually a medication that a lot of players do legitimately need, just like people in the general population. And so that's what makes this debate kind of interesting is that it's not as black and white as players shouldn't be taking that. Of course, like people do need this drug. So it's kind of about how does baseball monitor this? And there's a lot to discuss for sure. Anderson said that when he was taking it, he had boundless amounts of easily controlled energy. So obviously it's the focus that you were just talking about. He went on to say, you know, he was just utterly in the moment with a clear mission, win this pitch, the next one, the next one, the next one. And it just helped him focus so much. And as you were talking about this, a lot of focus required in the game, but there's a lot of travel time. There's a lot of stress on the body, fatigue that can set in. And something like this is really a game changer for them. It can really give them a leg up. And that's where the PED part comes into the equation, right? Again, going back to kind of comparing this to, let's say, steroids, I think steroids, even the word of it now, people immediately cringe, and that's kind of black and white in people's minds. The visual of that 
you know, as a player with huge muscles that's able to hit these home runs, like you clearly don't want that in the game. Whereas it's kind of harder to envision a player who has enhanced focus or, you know, feels like they can see the ball better. Like you don't see that on the screen, but if that's what's happening and players don't actually have prescriptions to have that drug, then by most definitions, performance enhancing. And so that's what I personally think so interesting about this is that this has been going on and while Major League Baseball does test for it, it's hard to test for. And so we really have no idea like how prevalent this is. I do remember there's one famous example in the last few years where the Orioles first baseman Chris Davis had an Adderall prescription, I believe it was in 2013, and he hit 53 home runs, had one of the best years in recent memory. The following year, didn't get his Adderall prescription renewed and hit like 24 home runs. Wow. So, you know, obviously that's one example and you don't want to draw too many conclusions and try and fit a narrative into there, but that is interesting. And I think Chris has gone on to get a different prescription, which is to Vyvanse, which is a similar medication. And I mean, he's literally been one of the worst hitters in baseball history. Again, not trying to draw too many conclusions, but it is interesting, particularly when you look at a player like him. You talked about the testing and it's hard to test for because the Adderall really doesn't stay in a person's body for too long at all. In urine, it's there for four days. But in blood, it's just 46 hours. So of all the drugs that Major League Baseball and all the professional sports leagues test for, like that's extremely small amount of time. And, you know, to get a prescription is fairly easy. You know, you go to a doctor and they're going to ask you the questions. If you answer in the affirmative to everything, you'll probably get one. Or you can get it through, quote unquote, a friend somewhere else. So it's fairly easy to get the pills. What else did Anderson say in his piece regarding all of this? I mean, what was his big takeaway? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing for baseball? You know, I think his takeaway was kind of in the middle, right, where kind of what I was alluding to, where this is a much more nuanced conversation than steroids are bad, get steroids out of baseball. He had one other kind of interesting point in there where he talked to a player who does have a prescription who does need Adderall, but he actually made the point that in order for him to have an Adderall prescription, the league wants to know that you're actually taking that drug for medical purposes. So he was required to actually take Adderall every day, and he actually argued that that was like bad. Like for some people, maybe if you wake up, you take your Adderall, go about your day. For others, it's potentially if you have a prescription and you're using it for specific tasks or things like that. When he was required to take it every day, he actually had sleep issues, insomnia, all these things. And so that was just another part of this debate that's on kind of the complete opposite side about how players who do have prescriptions have to take it every day. Has the league taken any specific stance on Adderall use? I know they probably test for it here and there, but with it being out of your system so quickly, I mean, it's hard to detect. Has MLB really done anything to curb use or any action on this at all? Not to my knowledge. I mean, they very well may have come out with statements in past years. I'm not entirely sure. I do know that this has been kind of one of those not talked about issues for a while. And I think maybe that means it's not a big issue. Maybe that means, again, going back to my point, people aren't even aware. I mean, it's not like one of those drugs where one of your teammates could be taking it, you'd be very aware of that. So again, who knows? Drawing the comparison to steroids again, steroids is so black and white. The visuals of steroids are so aggressive, you know, sticking a needle in your butt, things like that, where this is somebody's sister has Adderall and they try it and they feel like they're more focused and they take that and they do well hitting a baseball. Now all of a sudden it's, it's a huge thing. So very interesting. We'll see if anything comes to this piece, particularly with a former player having penned it. Kendall Baker, sports editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.